All right, let's pray and get into our text this morning. Let's bow our heads together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that we can uh, come together as your church, as the body of Christ, to praise your name, to exalt you, and to even, uh, Lord, esteem this day in a particular sense in which we can draw our attention specifically to the resurrection of your Son. And uh, as we have just recounted, what a glorious day that is. And we live as Christians in light of that, in light of resurrection life. And so we are so grateful uh, for all of the grace that accompanies that most important truth that Jesus Christ lives and lives forevermore. Bless our time in your word. May we be encouraged and comforted by it. May we be refreshed once again that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone. Good to be with you again. Uh, good to see you here. And again, it's a very, very special, very significant day. And, and who knows if uh, April 17th or what have you is the exact day that Christ rose from the dead the important thing is that we are here together and we are able to refresh ourselves at the fountain of that most magnificent truth. If Christ's death is able to save us, how much more so is Christ able to save us now that he has risen from the dead? And so what an occasion to come together and open up the word of God and to really feast on truths, truths that are so so essential, so necessary, so comforting and strengthening to the people of God. Um, when it comes to understanding the resurrection, it is nearly impossible to break down all of the benefits that the people of God reap from it. You think of one, you, think, you can think of a dozen. It is really an inexhaustible blessing. Even the fact that we say we have eternal life in Christ on the basis of His resurrection. That one day we will be glorified, that we will be in His very presence and like Christ, never to die again. On the basis of His resurrection, we experience forgiveness of sins. We experience justification. We experience sanctification. We experience all the blessings and growth that the Holy Spirit has to offer. And none of that would be true if Christ remained dead. And so we can once again reflect on those things on that most important truth. One thing I want to focus on this morning, again, there's many things we could focus on, but I think the primary thing today is the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings the church immense comfort. Another way of understanding the resurrection is that it removes all fear from the Christian. Now listen to that. The believer has no reason to fear because Christ is alive. Now, we do live in a culture of fear, and it's not even necessary to take a lot of time to make a laundry list of all the ways that we can be afraid in this world. I think among them this weekend is taxes. We fear taxes and other things. Terrifying. But we want to focus on the fact that Christ removes all fear, not just compartmentalized fears, not just individual fears, but removes fear itself. There is no basis for the believer in Jesus Christ to be afraid. None at all. However, we have just as much reason to be courageous 
to be bold, to stand strong in light of what Christ has done and what He has accomplished in His death and resurrection. We stand in that very reality today. It gives us immense eternal perspective. And don't get me wrong, focusing on the resurrection as a means to eternal comfort in no means is supposed to bring us into some kind of inert, careless state. It's not an opiate for the Christian masses. It's, taught, it's not even to numb us to the harsh realities of life. We understand that being comforted by the resurrection rather enables us, it strengthens us to endure and to persevere through those harsh realities, and yet, having done all to stand. It gives us comfort. The resurrection is a medicine for the heart. It is joy for the soul. And it comes through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us what you could call rest. Remember that. Faith in Christ is not just trusting in Him. It is resting wholly on what He has accomplished in His death and resurrection. And even His current work as our high priest and mediator. Christ indeed is our everything. He is our all in all. So let us focus this morning on the very comfort that He gives us. Comfort is an important thing. One in which we draw from the Word itself. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this, This is my comfort in my affliction. Are believers afflicted? Absolutely. Are believers suffering at times? Yes, we suffer. We experience loss. But this is the comfort in my affliction, says the psalmist, that your word has revived me. So no matter what affliction we face in life, the word of God is there and gives us life. It sustains us. And continues to give us that peace and hope that only comes in Christ through Christ alone. This is a very important thing to the Apostle Paul. Remember, uh, of all the apostles, it seems that Paul went through just a litany of persecution. Whether that was being beaten, stoned, chased from city to city, harassed, jailed, and eventually executed, Paul was a man who found comfort. Now listen to this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So not just any comfort, but a particular comfort that comes from God, even during, and I would say especially during affliction. We have a God who comforts us and sustains us, and a God that removes our fear, especially our fear of man. And so with that as my introduction, I want to focus on a very important text today. It's a book that I really, really love and am excited to preach from today, and that is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you're not turned there already, please turn there. Sermon title is, Do Not Be Afraid, A Vision of the Risen Christ. And really, my goal today is simply to encourage you guys, encourage the church here from the reality of the resurrection. You'll notice in your bulletin that the text, the primary text, is verse 17 through 18 of Revelation chapter 1. I am going to start at verse 9 so we understand the context, so please Follow along as I read the Word of God. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So there's that, basically that setup for this vision he's going to receive. We understand Lord's day most likely as Sunday, sort of became a traditional understanding of when the church would meet throughout the church age. Thus, we meet on Sunday, the first day commemorating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is the context. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So this is the Lord Jesus himself speaking or appearing to John. That's what we're presented with. Again, we are, we are now far removed from the baby in a manger. We are now even far removed from the meek and mild Jesus who walked the sands of Galilee and Judea, the one who is often portrayed as a consumptive girl in art, unfortunately. We forget the manliness of Jesus. And it seems like in so many ways we do whatever we can to weaken him, to portray him as something other or less than he actually is. And so we're not going to do that anymore, church. We're not going to do that anymore, especially not this morning. Here is a Jesus that we cannot ignore. Here is the glorified, ascended Son of Man and Son of God. Now, let's hit our main text today. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And then, of course, he goes on to instruct John to write the visions that are going to be presented, that are going to be revealed. Remember, this is the unveiling of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus himself. So let's take a look at what we have before us in verses 17 through 18. We have the context, we have the setting that John is writing from the island of Patmos, most likely uh, in the the late A.D. 60s, and he receives this vision. And so his first reaction is this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Again, no, no casual response, no, hey Jesus, how you doing? There is fear, right? There is a sense in which John is afraid for his very life. He cannot bear to look at this man who appears before him, even though he knows Jesus. And I think he knows that it is Jesus. Fell at his feet like a dead man. And you know, John's response is something that is common throughout Scripture. And you know what a person, when a person gets it, when they understand whom they are standing before. Something powerful. Something divine. 
something transcendent and beyond them. Something so holy and awesome, all they can do is look down and hope they don't die. Think about Daniel 7. Daniel was a man who received many visions. He remarks in chapter 10, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them. Check that out. These men didn't even see the vision, and they knew to be afraid. And they ran away to hide themselves, so I was left alone and saw this great vision, verse 8. Yet no strength, no strength, he said, was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retain no strength. So he's, he turns ashen. He is afraid. Probably the greatest fear he's ever felt in his life as he beholds this being before him, as he receives this vision. John does something similar. He falls over like a dead man. Such was the shock and awe and wonder of what he is about to see and what is he about to experience. Ezekiel, same thing, right? Ezekiel, another great prophet of the Scriptures. We don't only read of one instance where he collapses and falls over like a dead man. There are, there are quite a few. It happens in the first chapter where he sees something as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. So he's beholding the glory right now. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So there's going to be a pattern that's going to, that's going to emerge both from the Old and the New Testament in that once the, once the shock and awe is experienced, guess what happens? The Lord speaks. The Lord reveals. Right? The Lord gives a vision. Does so with Daniel, does so with Ezekiel, does so even with John. Happens again by the river Kibar, river Kibar chapter 3 of Ezekiel, verse 23. So I got up and went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. So he understood that he was in the presence of Almighty God, the true and living God of Israel, the Lord Himself. And so John understands the same thing, but I would say in a more profound way because here we have the incarnate glorified Word standing before him. John's revelation is great indeed, and so throughout so much of the prophet's experience, they have a vision of the Lord, or he appears before them, and their reaction, again, is an appropriate one. First of all, it's, 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 it's this sudden awareness that they are in the presence of God, and then fear, great fear, a sense of inferiority, a sense of their own sin and corruption. To say a few things. Same thing happened to Paul. Paul, the Christian hunter in the first portion of Acts. Same thing happens to him. This man wasn't even a Christian! And he understood that he was standing before someone divine. Who are you, Lord? He understood as Jesus appeared before him and knocked him off his feet. And said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul then understood. And then when Jesus told him, get up, right? Get up and go. And then you will find out what you must do. And and you don't see a lot of question from Paul, right? We don't see a confession yet. He hadn't even been baptized. Oh, and he does it. He knows he's talking to the Lord. It's amazing. So we go back to John now. And we think, well, he is following this same pattern, falling over like a dead man. And it's interesting because John is one who spent time with Jesus. 
spent much time with Jesus during his ministry. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the, the disciple that leaned on the breast of our Lord during the Last Supper. Loved Jesus so much. And yet now as Jesus appears here, as the glorified ascended Son of Man, he falls over. See, his response is different now. Falls down as a dead man. It's amazing. Walking around with Jesus, the only reason that could happen, of course, is because even though he was the radiance of the glory of God, God incarnate, he was veiled in flesh, and now he is unveiled. He is unveiled. He understands. See, we're getting a glimpse of Jesus as he is. Remember, guys, this is the same Jesus that walks among his church. This is the Jesus that walks among Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church. This Jesus will kill you. This is a dangerous Jesus. This is not a Jesus we can repackage and reimagine. This is Jesus as he is. And one of the main struggles of the church today, friends, even on Resurrection Sunday, is to understand the Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is. What has happened to us? How can you pervert this? How can you make this more palatable or appealing? And yet this is the Lord as he is. The Lord as risen Savior, and yet the Lord as risen Judge of all the earth. Remember that at the beginning of this book, He is called the Ruler of the Kings of the Earth. Chapter 1, verse 5. There is no question as to who is reigning and who is in charge. That Jesus now is reigning amongst His enemies, but He dwells with His church with impeccable power and authority. Something my old pastor said regarding this uh, Regarding this passage, he says this, I've said through the years, and I say it again, just as a reminder, the church will never, never be holy until preachers begin to preach the glory of God. Because until people see God for who He is, they'll never understand their own sinfulness and be driven to holiness. So mark this, especially for the Christian. When we, when we behold Jesus as He is, we, it is to drive us to Him, not away from Him. That we would, as ironic as it seems, find comfort in this display of sovereign power and glory. Yet we have to recapture that vision as a church of who Jesus really is. This is where we quote the inimitable R.C. Sproul. What's wrong with you people? Right? If, you've heard, if you've heard of that, that, that uh, Q&A session, he basically goes on to say the problem with the church is that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are with respect to who God is. So yes, what is wrong with us? But listen to what Sproul says. He says, and they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, purity, and holiness, exhibit A, Revelation 1, then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. But now listen to what he says. When that happens, we fly to grace because we recognize that there's no way that we could ever stand before God apart from grace. Why can John stand before Jesus and not be burnt to a crisp? One word, grace. Here's a man. He is born again. He is born again. He has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of him. He believes in Jesus. And what is so comforting in an instant like this is that Jesus knows that. <laughs> Jesus understands that. That he is going to speak to someone who trusts in him who is born again, who shares his very life. That is why John can continue to receive the vision. It is only by grace. But I think we can follow John's example here in terms of how we respond 
to the presence of the Lord. Look at these verbs that John uses in the first person throughout this description. Talks about him, you know, being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and then he says, then he says, I heard. Right? He heard. He turned. He looked. He saw. He fell. May our response resemble that, at least in part, that when we that when, when Christ reveals Himself to us, when we, when we hear the Word of God proclaimed, but there is a turning, right? But there is a repentance. But there is a beholding, right? Not merely a looking, but a perceiving of how God has revealed Himself to us in Christ. And then, of course, humility. When was the last time we fell when we beheld Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead? When was the last time we felt such awe and wonder at the grace and power of Christ, that all we could do was fall in humility and do nothing else besides. That until we express that humility, man, we, couldn't, we couldn't, couldn't listen anymore. We had to first perceive who Christ is in all of His power. And yet, John does not die. What does Christ give him instead? He gives him comfort. He gives him reassurance. Great encouragement. Look what he does. Says he, he, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but then, and he, that is Jesus, placed his right hand on me. I think it, it's easy to say here, what does the, right, the right hand symbolize? Favor. Grace. John, you will not die. <laughs> Puts his right hand on me. Trust me, friends, if you were in this, you would be terrified. You would not want this person to touch you. And yet for him to reach out and touch John the Apostle was to say, I favor you. You have my grace. And I would say too, as the church, we have that same grace enumerated to us through the Gospel and through the Word as the Holy Spirit ministers to us. And he placed his right hand on me saying, listen to this, do not be afraid. Oh, is John afraid? Absolutely. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Such a, I think there's such an irony here because that's the one thing he should be afraid of. That is the one thing we should fear. Even Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul. But fear, I'll tell you the one you should fear, right? I fear the one who after killing you can also destroy you in hell. And yet he is saying, do not be afraid. And the immense comfort we gain from this, friends, is that, mark this, if Jesus says, don't be afraid of me, we don't have to be afraid of anything else. When the one person whom we should be afraid of says, do not be afraid, obey him, listen to him, trust him. Because when you do, you do not have to fear anything else. Not in this life or the next. We must recover this vision of Jesus. I think of uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Mr. Beaver talking to Susan, right? She asks, what is this Aslan the Great? What is this lion? Is he quite safe? No, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the vision we must recover. Not this safe Jesus, but a Jesus with all power and glory and authority, and yet he's good, and he's good to his people. And he will never do otherwise. And then he goes on to present himself. 
in a few ways. So look at the text again. Do not be afraid. Of course, okay, so what is going to follow from this, from this command, not a suggestion, when he says, do not be afraid, it's a command. He goes on to basically say, why? Why should we not be afraid? Listen to this. He says, I am the first and the last. Okay, there's one thing, or two things actually. And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So look at this first line, I am the first and the last. So let's not miss those two words there. Christ, throughout this passage, is making a firm, undeniable claim to deity. When he uses the word, I am, think of how that connects so well with John and the Gospel of John, right? The writer of John and the writer of the book of Revelation. I am is a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. These constant claims to not only being God in a vague sense, but being Yahweh as was revealed to Israel in the Old Testament. He is Yahweh come in the flesh. He is the great I am. So that's the first comfort we take is that Jesus is God, and He is present with us. It's the same thing as is referenced once again in John chapter 6, verse 20. John would recognize, this would bring back a memory of Jesus Himself when the disciples are, are out on the sea and they're in the boat and the storm comes and they are afraid. And what does Jesus tell them? It is I. Do not be afraid. But what is He literally saying? I am. Do not be afraid. The fact that he is declaring himself to be the covenant-keeping God of Israel brings them comfort. Because I am, do not be afraid anymore. The only difference is that in John 6.20, Jesus is in the storm, and in Revelation 1.17-18, Jesus is the storm itself. But in any case, he says, stop being afraid. I am God and I am with you. Constant comfort for the people of God throughout the ages, not only here, but always, for throughout all time. The fact that Jesus is God and that He is with us, there is no greater comfort than that. And then He says this, I am the first and the last. So here we have another confirmation of Christ in His deity. He is the first and the last. But I think there's more here. We have to say it's not just... There's not just affirmations of deity going on here, but what does that affirmation of deity declare about Jesus himself? Right? What does it reveal of him? Because as we understand, Jesus is not God in a vague sense. He doesn't just say, I am God, but he also expresses what God is like. And so there's a point to him saying these particular things. Now think of this in light of the context. The revelation Jesus is about to reveal the trials and tribulations that the church is going to endure. Not just leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think here there is a template. There is a message to the church throughout all the ages that we will endure persecution. We will endure rejections. We will suffer the reproaches of Jesus Christ. And the church will never do that unless it knows who its God is. But listen to this comfort. And this, this comes out, I think, rather beautifully. I am the first 
and the last. So this is something, once again, one of the reasons we understand that Jesus is God is by comparing the names he shares with the God of the Old Testament. And this is one of them. God in the Old Testament proclaims himself as the first and the last. Now write these down. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, Isaiah 44, verse 6, see it's a common theme through uh, Isaiah, as well as Isaiah 48, 12, I am the first and the last. God revealing himself to his people with the truth of who he is. I am the first and the last. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation, right? Jesus, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is God a very God. But I think there's more to it than this when it pertains to the comfort of the believer in Christ. As Christ reveals Himself. As He reveals His deity. When He says, I am the first and the last, what He is saying very clearly is that He is sovereign over all of history. He doesn't just have the first and the last under control. He is the first and the last. He guides history from its Inception to its very consummation. Listen to Isaiah 46.10. God describes Himself as the one declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, listen to this, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So in Christ's deity, we see His sovereignty over all of human history, over all of redemptive history. He declares it. That's how in charge he is. He declares what's going to happen. He knows it and he controls it. He is history's sovereign, but he's also history's focus. I think we're reminded of this in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. He said, Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So here in the book of Revelation, we get some some kind of exhibition of the glories to follow. We're living in them now even. But he's history's focus. And what explains that better than the Holy Scriptures? That's how we understand that. God revealing himself. God prophesying of the Messiah, of the Word made flesh who would come and redeem his people. See, He is the focus of all of history. And even now that He has come and died and buried and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, He is still the focus of history. So when we go out and proclaim the Gospel, we are drawing people's attention to Him. Focus on this. Feast your eyes on this, on what He is doing, on what He is accomplishing in His power and wisdom. But this responsibility, I think, lies firmly in the church. We must, he must be our focus as well. He must be of first priority. He must be first place in all things. He must be made known. And so along with that, he is also, as the first and the last, he is history's purpose. He gives history itself purpose. Once you do away with Christ, life ceases to have meaning. The passage of time ceases to have any significance. Of course, the whole universe would cease to exist since he holds it together by the word of his power. But he is history's purpose. I think we find this out very clearly even in Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus is basically handed the the title deed to the earth and then 
If you look at verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, there isn't really anything missing in that statement. Worthy is the Lamb to be all in all. Worthy is Him to have ownership and authority and everything. And not only that, but all praise. All worship to be directed toward Him. That's what I mean by purpose. History's purpose is that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted at every corner of creation. And the Gospel commands people to do that. To do nothing short of that. Reveals history's purpose, but also, I think most specifically, is man's purpose. To be, to be born again. To be remade in the image of Christ. So that not only we reflect His goodness, but we reflect the necessity of His worship. That He deserves everything. He owns everything, so He deserves everything. He is the first and the last. And all glory and honor goes to Him. He is over all of history. Let's keep reading on. I am the first and the last. He is also the living one, right? He's not only the first and the last, you know, the fulfillment of all prophecy, fulfillment of the law, right? He's not just the main message of Scripture. We're not dealing with, we're not dealing with the Jesus who came to earth one day and then died and then just disappeared, right? He accomplished everything. That's why Scripture calls him the author and perfecter of our faith. But he does that as the living one, right? He's able to author and perfect our faith because he is the living one. He is alive. Once again, a statement drawn from the Old Testament as early as Joshua 3.1, God reveals himself as the living one. It's throughout the, the psalmist uses it. If you want to write these references down, 42.2, 84.2, he's the living one. Think about it, he reveals himself to Hosea as the living one. How pertinent, as at that point, Israel is basically a withering branch. They are a dying tree. And the one who can give them hope comes and says, I am the living one. I can give you life. I can sustain you. Familiar pattern in John, right at the get-go in the opening of John's Gospel. He says of Jesus in verse 4, In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. When we view the God of Scripture, one of the most outstanding things about Him is that He is alive. You think about that concept of life. We do not know life apart from an understanding of God who is life itself. You understand that? That's why we say without God, everything loses its meaning. Life loses its meaning. So conversely, if God is the living God, life suddenly has, has meaning. It has significance. It has purpose. Think about the very heartbeat. very heartbeat of man, of every man, woman, and child, would be insignificant. We would not understand its purpose at all unless we are presented from the Scriptures with a living God. And that's why we say apart from Him, there is no life. Apart from Him, there is no light. But He is the living God. That was part of Peter's great confession when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? A lot of people say, are saying different things, but who do you say I am? 
And what does Peter say before he puts his foot in his mouth? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He understood that Christ was not only the Son of God, but the Son of the living God. The God who lives, the God who gives life. We see in here, not, again, not only the fact that Jesus is God, but as the living one, He is the source of life itself. He is the one who, by His grace, gives life to His people. Gives life out of the abundant goodness and grace of the triune God. He is the living one. And as long as Christ lives, we have nothing to fear. It's interesting, one, one preacher pointed out that the fact that Jesus is the living God also points us to what He is not or who He is not. In all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, we are warned against idolatry. We are warned against compromising our faith in Christ by deviating to trusting in false gods of any kind. And we read what the Scripture says. right? What God is not. What are idols, right? We fashion idols all the time, whether it be an idol of the heart or if we go OT style and we take a raw material and fashion something in our own image to worship. What does God say of those things? They have eyes, but they don't what? They can't see. They have a mouth. They can't talk. They have ears they cannot hear. God is saying, there is no God like me. Who can save like me? Who can see like me? Who can speak like me? Who reveals mysteries and wonders like me? And yet, who is the God? What God hears? What God hears the prayers and worship of His people? See, He is not these deaf, dumb, blind, stupid idols that we constantly keep conjuring up. Where is the comfort in that? Where is the peace in that? Where is any life in that? If Christ is dead, that's the tragedy of all of this. If Christ is dead, He is one more dumb, deaf idol. And yet, He is the living one. He is the living one. And so He says, I am the living one and I was dead. See, I live though I have died. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Yet another reason that we do not, along with John, have to fear the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. He says, I am the living one. I, I literally became dead. And behold, look, I am alive forevermore. So you understand that Jesus died. He died because it was necessary. It was not only foretold uh, by the prophets, but actually through the predestined plan of God, Christ laid down His life for His people, died the death of a sinner, was treated like a common criminal, was put in the ground and then was raised from the dead in three days. He was dead. See, we, were, we, we get some kind of insight from 1 Peter 3.18. Remember, he, he died for sinners once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And then we find that even though He died, very much so as a man, He died, and yet He was alive in the Spirit. Right. He was alive in the Spirit. So even though He died, He was not destroyed. He was not annihilated. He did not cease to be. And because His sacrifice was perfect and acceptable before God the Father, death could not hold Him. Death was not worthy of Christ. 
Listen to what Peter preaches in Acts 2.24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. See, death had no claim over him like it does on us. Now we understand that in Christ and in his resurrection life, it also has no ultimate claim over us. But it is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And one thing will be abundantly clear. Are you alive with Jesus Christ? Are you partaking of his resurrection power? Are you a partaker of the life that conquers death? that puts it in its place, a life that is indestructible. This is, this is the life that is in question. I became dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. This was a very real historical victory over death. Listen to preaching, the apostles preaching from Acts 13.34. This is from Paul. As for the fact that he raised them up from the, raised him up from the dead, no longer... To return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Right? He's drawing from Psalm 16. You will not let your holy one see, see decay. That was ultimately pointing toward the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And that Christ would be given the holy and sure blessings of David. Now we'll talk more on that in a minute because it's very significant to the resurrection. But this is Jesus who has all power, whose resurrection life is indestructible. Do not be afraid, he says, I am the death conqueror. Do not be afraid, I am the living one. Though I was, though I was dead, I am alive forevermore. So there's, another, there's some more insight into the Jesus that we're dealing with here. He died, he is alive, but he is alive forevermore. He is alive forever. The first person to die and to be made alive, never to die again. Certainly people were raised. We, we read of Lazarus. Guess what? Lazarus died again. Jesus is the first person raised never to die again. He is, we say, the author of the new humanity. The first person with resurrection life and power. And so on that note, he can say, I am alive forevermore. So he is the one who lives forever. This is found in Deuteronomy 32.40 as Moses is instructing the, 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 uh, the Israelites. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. Notice here, he is the one who declares himself to live forever in the context of judgment. It's the very same thing we have going on here. In Revelation chapter 1, as the one who is alive forevermore, he is able to pronounce and execute judgment on his enemies. That is what Revelation presents. The fact that Jesus is the one who has the sword going out of his mouth. He sees everything. He's ruler of the kings of the earth. He executes perfect judgment among the nations and thereby delivers his people. He is savior and judge. He is healer and destroyer, and we cannot afford to miss that. So no matter what or whom rebels against God, we must know this, that in His resurrection authority, God in Christ judges His enemies. Right? He outlives, you could say, He outlives His critics. By virtue of the fact that He is the living One and lives forever, all mouths will eventually be stopped. All rebellion will eventually be crushed. And Christ alone will be glorified. 
Also note this, in this is a promise. The fact that Jesus is alive forevermore means that that will never change. Right? We hear a lot of promises in our life. Right? We, we are the recipients of a lot of broken promises. Of a lot of promises, though, though sworn even on, on God's name, fail to come to fruition. And when Jesus presents Himself in this manner, we are standing face to face with the promise. Because as long as Jesus lives, we live as well. It's a promise that time itself cannot erode. Just as time erodes rock, right? Just as time, throughout time we see many landscapes change, whether that be political landscapes, economic landscapes, power always changing hands constantly. Even time we find can erode our zeal, right? We are an impatient lot. God help us. But it can affect our convictions, our cherished beliefs. And yet one thing that time can never alter or undo is the life that we have in Christ. So whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Because Christ is alive forevermore, so shall we be. And the fact that Christ lives, we know that He lives also ever to make intercession for us. He lives right now and lives on our, be- on, on our, on our behalf and we receive all the graces commensurate with His life. So the message is clear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In this last point, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So this is a very interesting statement. We'll dig, we'll dig in this a little bit. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So again, we're faced here with Christ's divine authority. That's what keys mean. Christ is in charge. Not only only does He have sovereignty, but He also has authority with the keys of death and Hades. So we say, okay, well, what is? we all use keys. In fact, many times keys turn up around our house and we have no idea what on earth they're for. We don't know what they lock or unlock. But one thing a key stands for, right? The first is authority. You have the keys to something, you are in charge of that thing. There are things that you've been entrusted with if you have the key, right? You know, if, you're, uh, if, you had, if you had good, conscientious parents, they knew when the right time was to give you the key to the car so you could go out and drive and cruise the streets of downtown Colorado Springs with your homies, right? That was trust, right? But you were living on borrowed authority so you could control the car. Right? But you needed the key or else the car don't start. Right? There's authority there. There's a special kind of access, right? Without a key, you don't have access. See, keys can be given, keys can be taken away, but keys have always pointed to something special, something that did not belong to everyone else. And so this comfort that we have through the fact that Christ has the keys, listen to this, the keys of death and Hades. We would think nothing is so daunting as death and Hades. But there's another thing in view too. There is nothing that is so far beyond our control, our ability to control, than death and Hades, right? Everyone dies. Death has a 100% mortality rate, except maybe Enoch and Elijah. We know those exceptions. (laughs) Everyone dies. And wouldn't it be great if someone who was for us had power 
and authority even over our greatest enemy. See, our greatest enemy isn't the devil. Our greatest enemy is death. It's death. And Christ is master over it. We don't think of him often as master or even God of death. We think of him, oh, he's God of life, he's God of grace. But no, as having the keys of death and Hades, he has all authority over it. He has the final say. He decides who dies and who lives. He decides who is going to the grave and who will rise from it. He has all of that authority. And he has all the power to open and close the door to which the keys go. Romans 6.9 Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Guess what? Christ is master over death. There's no neutrality between Christ and death. There's no neutrality between anything and death. Death will be master over you, or you will be master over death. We don't have that kind of authority. But in Christ, along with Him, death will be conquered. Because He has the keys. So let's try to understand this a little further. Now, we might have to flip your page in the book of Revelation, but look at chapter 3. In the message to Philadelphia, Christ reveals Himself in a particular fashion. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. So once again, Christ has a key who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That is absolute access. That is absolute power and authority over this door, over this key of David. And I would suggest that the key, in the grand scheme of things, is ultimate royal divine authority. See, David was the great king of Israel. And now here we have the Lord Jesus as the greater David who has the key. He has all the power and authority. And I would say, this: we're looking at one key here. The key of David is the same keys in question of death and of Hades. Because it all points to the reality of Christ's supreme royal power over the cosmos. As the true and greater David. And in terms of Revelation 3.7, John is no doubt drawing from Isaiah chapter 22. See, the key to understanding the Old Testament is, or the, the book of Revelation is to understand the Old Testament. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. So in Isaiah 22, we read this. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So here, this man Eliakim is basically being entrusted with authority to rule over Judah, over the house of David. Then he says this in verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. This is where it's mentioned. When he, sh- when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So you see that very idea, that very concept is repeated in Revelation 3.7. This signifies ultimate authority. You are the guardian. You are the gatekeeper. And in the Old Testament, here in Isaiah 22, it was Eliakim. And in Revelation, we sort of have the full view of it. It is the Lord Jesus with ultimate authority. He has the key of David. And he has power over death and Hades, our greatest enemy. And then it says this in verse 23 of Isaiah 22, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Who sits on the throne of glory now? The Lord Jesus. Now listen to this. This is interesting. 
Because Eliakim has authority over the house of David. He has the keys. Eliakim means God has established. And what are we seeing in the book of Revelation? The establishment of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no coincidences. It's not a kosher word. But here we see through Christ and his rule and him having the key of David, the fullness of what Eliakim and his rule was looking forward to. So Jesus is both the greater Eliakim and the greater David. And now in Christ, God has established and is thoroughly advancing his kingdom. Notice this too. This key is set on Eliakim's shoulder. Isaiah 9.6, the government will rest on whose shoulders? Jesus Christ. So Eliakim provides us with an interesting Christ-like figure. And so Christ becomes the greater David and the greater Eliakim who has all ruler, rule and authority over his kingdom. Whereas Eliakim had authority and jurisdiction over the house of Judah, now Christ rules over the true Israel, the church, as well as the entire universe. And he alone, here's the point, he alone determines who enters. He alone determines who lives and who dies. And what grace is that for us, church, that because we are in Christ, now we are secure from death and Hades. Realize this. Now connect this with what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Why? Guess who has the keys? And here's another interesting thing. The gates of Hades are there. They're gates because hell and Hades and the grave are on the defensive. The one, the one who has the keys will unlock that so that the assault can begin. It's not to keep Hades locked. It's to open the gates so that the church going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the Gospel can see death and Hades overcome. And Christ has the key. So we can go forth in holy array, in power and authority, because Christ already has the victory over death in Hades. He stole the key. He took the key, and it belongs to him. And that is why the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Because Christ has the key, it will be thrown open and subdued and conquered. That's the comfort we have in the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. These keys give him the final victory, and they also anticipate the end of of the book of Revelation. Now mark these down. Revelation 20.14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. See, that's, that, we know how it ends. Death and Hades will be finally defeated because Christ has the key and all authority and all access. Also 21.4 of Revelation And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So there's great comfort for the people of God in that. No matter how you interpret Revelation, when it gets to the end, there is certain victory for Christ and His bride. There is certain comfort from Christ to His bride. The old things have passed away and we have nothing to look forward to but newness. A new creation. Listen to what Vern Poitras says. The triumph through this one man then extends in its perfection to us so that it becomes the permanent triumph of the entire new world. Amazing. And that's ours. That is the comfort that we have. seems comfort is such a 
a weak word to use, but that is it. We have nothing to fear. John doesn't have anything to fear. The church has nothing to fear. Why? Because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And Christ is the ultimate victor and has the keys to everything. So in closing, a very quick recap. Where is it this com- speaking of this comfort? Speaking of this rest. Jesus, we find, is the risen I Am. So rest in His divinity. That He is God. Jesus is the risen Lord of history. So rest in His sovereignty. He, is under con- he has it all under control. Jesus is the risen Lord of life. Right, He is the life giver. So rest in His sufficiency. He sustains that life. He is good for His Word to secure and ensure that His sheep enter glory. And finally, Jesus is the risen Lord over death. So rest in His authority. Even death itself is at the command of Jesus. And because it is, death has no power over us. That is our comfort, and that is the very foundation of the praise that we direct toward Christ in all of His risen glory, goodness, and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for what, what a wonderful book uh, Revelation is. And, and one of the things we can reflect on and thank you for is that it's understandable. You want us to get it. You want us to see Jesus as He really is. That we can see that holy vision unleashed in our midst and, and start <laughs> acting like Christians who really know who Jesus is. The risen, ascended King of glory. And yet a King who cares for us. A King who is still our Good Shepherd. Who gives us life and no one will snatch us from His hand and the Father's hand. And we, Lord, what, what praise can be rendered because of that? Words, words fail to sufficiently describe it. But we can be with one another, Father, and be comforted. We know that this is, this is one of those times where it seems like even those who don't know You especially are trying to discourage us. Trying to instill fear. As if hope is lost and that we must find it in some other place than God and in His Christ. Lord, may we repent of even going there. That we can take great comfort because we belong to You. And that as long as You live, this comfort is unabated. It never has to depart because you do not change. We can claim that promise. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can say amen to that. That is our promise. And so Lord, rather than being driven from this glorious vision of You, may it be a fear that causes us to cling. We don't have to fear being destroyed. And yet, in holy reverence and even in holy terror, we can cling to the One who saves us. We can cling to the One who purifies us by His grace. We can cling to the One who has loved us and has laid His life down for us and has given us resurrection, life, and power. Because of that, Father, we thank You. We love You. We adore You and praise You. In Jesus' precious name, Amen.